Publishers of the Daily Mail have filed their defense to Prince Harry and Meghan Markle's privacy claim against them. In this episode, we dissect that defense and see if it has any substance. And since the happy, formerly royal couple have just touched down in British Columbia, we also get a Canadian perspective on their privacy travails. That's all on the Media Law Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Media Law Podcast. I'm Tom Bennett and with me once again, though it's been a while, is Paul Rag. Hi, Paul. Hi, Tom. I have not seen you for a while. How are you? Very well, thank you. How are you? Well, I'm enjoying the new year and all the pleasures that academic life brings, obviously. <laughs> so we are today going to be wrestling with the subject matter that seems to be on everyone's minds and lips in the first few weeks of 2020. And that is, of course, the right royal shenanigans or possibly no longer royal shenanigans associated with Prince Harry and Meghan Markle uh, and their latest run-in with the tabloid press in the United Kingdom. Um, we're going to be talking a little bit later with uh, Hilary Young of University of New Brunswick in Canada about Harry and Meghan's capacity to defend their privacy in Canada. But first, Paul and I are going to be talking about the litigation that Harry and Meghan have commenced against Associated Newspapers Limited, publishers of the Daily Mail and the Mail on Sunday, in respect of their publication of uh, a letter that Meghan wrote to her father, Thomas Markle, in which he passed on to the Daily Mail. And this was published back in the summer of 2019. It is still on the Daily Mail's website. A claim has been issued for misuse of private information, amongst other things, in the High Court. And we have just had sight of Associated Newspapers' defence to the claim. And Paul, you've written on the Inform blog a couple of posts about that defence. So perhaps you can tell us what's going on. Uh Certainly. Well, I will try my best. If any, anyone that's read my um, post on the Informed blog knows that um, having read the defence, I'm really none the wiser about what it is the uh, Associated Newspapers Limited think they can say in defence of their actions. As you said, Tom, they published uh, a letter that uh, the Duchess of Sussex had written to her father in light of his continuing um, engagements with the tabloid press, both in the US and also in the UK. And the purpose of the letter really was to illustrate the effect it was having on the Duchess and the Duke of Sussex to remind the father that uh, these claims he was making were very hurtful um, to them and to ask him to stop. Um, the Mail on Sunday published uh, the story ostensibly in a sort of sympathetic way. Um, the, the headline and the story itself suggests that they are sympathetic to the Duchess of Sussex's position. Um, they describe her as being heartbroken uh, by the actions of the um, 
father. So the, the story itself isn't particularly hostile. What's interesting is that in the defence, uh, the defence tries to claim that the action itself um, should fail because the letter isn't uh, private sufficiently, at least, to satisfy uh, the first limb of the Campbell test, i.e. that it, there's no reasonable expectation of privacy in the letter. Um, and also that uh, the Duchess of Sussex's claims in uh, copyright and data protection should also fail on the grounds that copyright can't apply to this kind of letter for reasons that we'll, we'll come on to shortly. Um, but also that there's no possibility of applying data protection uh, legislation because the information contained nothing that was sufficiently personal uh, to count. Crikey. Well, we're going to have to break all that down, aren't we? Yeah. Reasonable expectation of privacy. So the defence is that there is no reasonable expectation of privacy in a letter written to one's father yeah. talking about how he's uh, making one feel yeah. and asking him to desist from his activities and engaging with the tabloids. Yeah. Now, I have to say the clarity of the defence is, is uh, impaired in an important sense. It's actually difficult to work out what it is the uh, the Sunday Mail is, is actually saying here. But it, it seems to be there's, there's two points. That one, the letter just isn't private and therefore can't count as generating a, a reasonable expectation of privacy. And the second thing is that even if it is private, um, the Duchess of Sussex has somehow waived her right to privacy uh, in uh, two ways. The, the first of these is by being uh, somehow complicit in uh, an interview that the people, the people magazine in the US ostensibly conducted with some of her close friends. Uh, and the other way uh, is because she wrote the letter in her best handwriting. What? Because she wrote the letter in her best handwriting. I'm not sure I quite follow that one. Well, I mean, it's obvious. She clearly wanted people to read the letter because she wrote it in her best handwriting. But the mail only published the first four lines of it showing her handwriting, the rest of it they typed out in a more legible font themselves. But it was in her best handwriting. But not with, notwithstanding that, even if she'd wanted the world to see it, the mail didn't permit the world to see it. But I think what you're forgetting there, Tom, is that not only was it in her best handwriting, there were no crossings out. Oh, right. Suddenly, all crystal clear. Yes. If I Sorry, can, no. <clears throat> if I can quote uh, directly from the defence, she, and this is a direct quote, she took great care over its presentation. The letter appears to have been immaculately copied out by the claimant in her own elaborate handwriting from a previous draft. How does the Associated Newspapers know there was a previous draft? Because there are no crossings out or amendments as there usually are 
with a spontaneous draft. Really? There are no... Now, let me, just, let me just play with that one for a second. I mean, you and I, we're academics. We handwrite a lot of stuff. We mark assignments all the time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm struggling to recall the last time that while spontaneously writing extensive feedback on an exam script, I had to cross something out. Mm -hmm. And if, if one is capable of thinking coherently, crossings out are perhaps more rare than the Daily Mail is suggesting, right? I mean, well, I've got some notes in front of me for the podcast today, and there isn't yeah. a crossing out on them. Yeah. Not that I claim to be, you know, astonishingly coherent in my thoughts. Not Nothing unusual. I'm not some handwriting, clear-thinking savant. I'm just, you know, a normal, not a regular guy taking some notes. No, I think that does mark you out as some kind of special case. Right. Okay. But I think what you're also forgetting to take into account there, Tom, is that she kept a copy of the letter. And this of itself is sufficiently sinister for the newspaper to record it in their defence. For they say it is to be inferred that she kept a copy of the letter in order that she could use it herself including by disclosing its contents to others. So she kept a copy of the letter that she wrote to her father, mm -hmm. asking him not to share any more stories with the tabloid press mm -hmm. so that she could herself share that story with the tabloid press mm -hmm. or some other people. We don't know who the other people might be that the male thinks she might be sharing this with in such a fashion as to rob her claim of any reasonable expectation of privacy no but we don't need to because the thing speaks for itself oh right good well i was wondering when that line was going to arrive yeah things uh, do speak for themselves in law of course yeah recipes are loquitur exactly crack the latin out when in doubt okay well uh, before we move on with the reasonable expectation of privacy let's just sort of touch on this this idea that uh, a letter that uh, a daughter writes to her father in which she pours out her heart saying how heartbroken she is uh, can't be thought of as something that's that's private um okay because this of itself is 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 interesting um one <laughs> the lawyers for the daily mail say that this this was not a deeply personal letter nor did it contain sensitive personal information about the claimant Interestingly, the Daily Mail itself wrote on the 11th of February 2019 that the letter was a deeply personal handwritten note which lays bare the full extent of the devastating fallout between the pair. So it's a deeply personal letter that isn't that deep or personal. Or sensitive. Right. <clears throat> but one thing I'm I'm really struggling to get my head around, when I say one thing, I, I mean all of it, is something else they say in the defence. Um, a recipient of a letter is not obliged to keep its existence or its contents private unless there are special circumstances, such as a mutual understanding between sender and recipient, that the contents of a letter should be kept private. Um, that's actually a quote taken from the defence. 
the um, defence describes this as a general principle. Well, there's a sort of general principle of confidence law circa 1975. <clears throat> and I can kind of get my head around it. But yeah. we, we, we are a little bit further along in the timeline of developing legal protections for personal privacy. Yeah. Beyond the need for uh, an express obligation of privacy. We haven't needed that since the spy catcher case. Exactly. And, and that principle, should that principle exist, only applies to confidentiality. Yes. It's never been applied in the context of privacy. So quite why they think this is a general principle. At, at no point in Murray or any other case did a judge say, well, in order to determine if something's private, we need to work out if there's a pre-existing relationship between the parties in which they both or an agreed. express obligation of privacy that's imposed by one upon the other. Exactly. We moved away from that very clearly yes. uh, when we had Campbell uh, and other cases after that. Yes, because it was necessary to do so in order for English law to be compatible with the European Convention on Human Rights, amongst other reasons. Yeah. Okay. Um, now, the, the uh, privacy, the reasonable expectation of privacy is, of course, only one part of, of Campbell. Um, the defence um, makes a big thing, a big thing out of reasonable expectation of privacy. Um, a lot of the eggs are in that basket, but mm -hmm. there is some sort of recognition that actually, despite what they think, uh, this defence isn't quite as strong as it as it could be. Um, and so they do cover the the alternative, which is that the court moves on to the second stage of um, Campbell, and so they say, well, even if it is uh, private. Um, there is a uh, weighty, uh, a huge and legitimate, and also an enormous uh, public interest in knowing of this um, information. Huge and enormous. Huge and enormous, yeah. Oh, okay. And, and weighty. I really want to know which of those is bigger, huge all, or enormous. All of them. If anyone knows, do uh, send us a tweet. Yeah. Let us know. Maybe we can have an online vote. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, the, the the sort of public interest arguments aren't aren't particularly interesting. They're all they're all going to fail. But um, the the first one is a sort of general. Well, she's a member of the royal family, and everything the royal family does is of public interest, which is of course nonsense. Um, Demonstrably so, because there have been a number of cases brought by members of the royal family dating back. Well, well over a hundred years, yeah. In which consistently, the courts have held that there is no automatic public interest in the lives of the royals sufficient to outweigh either confidentiality rights or, more recently, privacy rights. Yeah. Um, the the another aspect of the public interest uh, claim is this idea that. Um, Kensington Palace made it uh, a matter of public interest when they published an official statement on why um, the father was absent from the wedding. Uh, okay, so how how did they make it a matter in in so far as uh, after one reason had been given, 
it was up to the newspaper to uncover evidence that the reason given might not have been truthful. Yeah, that this kind of, well, the, this sort of idea that he didn't uh, attend for a particular reason sort of opened the door to um, the... <laughs> it opened the door for the uh, Mail on Sunday to be able to present Mr. Markle's version of events. Right. Ah, so... Because it's him that has passed the letter over and presumably given some sort of statement or interview, giving his side of the story, that he's entitled to attempt to correct the record yeah. in his own way, mm -hmm. accurately or otherwise. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, which um, I think demonstrates they haven't read McKenna and Ash uh, sufficiently closely. Yes. Um. And then, yeah, this this sort of third one is a sort of combination of, of lots of different parts. But um, this this idea, and I think actually this is the most interesting of all of them. So, um, and and uh, only only relatively, um, it's this idea that um, the People magazine uh, interview, which ostensibly was several of um Meghan Markle's close friends um who had said things about the father's relationship with his daughter um that this somehow constituted a kind of waiver uh, of um her rights which of course speaks to the the, the public interest in the privacy claim um but also adds to this idea of um, setting the record straight that because of her complicity, her alleged complicity in this uh, story, um, this also meant that uh, the newspaper was entitled to put his version of events across. Well, in that case, things are, are improving a bit hmm. um, because uh, in... Um, in respect of pre-existing relationship, uh, defence was kind of resembling the law circa 1970s, <laughs> at least in dredging up a, a waiver doctrine that has been discredited for at least a decade. At least we are demonstrably in the kind of early 2000s at this point. Yeah, yeah. So the law is a little more up to date here. Yeah. Um, but waiver has not been a serious part of privacy litigation in this country for the best part of a decade now. Well, exactly right. And I think it the difficulty is with this sort of waiver type argument and the public interest claims that they say spin off it. Um, it's kind of going against the grain of what privacy is about, which is selective disclosure. Yeah. Uh, uh, control over, over information. You know, she... If she has made a selective disclosure in the way that lots of um, individuals who are well-known make selective disclosures in certain contexts, for example, in the context of um, even in a royal context, pregnancy, delivery of a baby, only certain information is, is disclosed, usually the fact of birth and the mother being okay, but also things like people uh, being in a relationship, breaking up, or consciously uncoupling, whatever. 
Um, these are acts of uh, selective disclosure that of themselves reaffirms privacy and the right to privacy. It doesn't remove it or signify that the person is removing their right to privacy. So at this point, um, because we've been talking about reasonable expectation of privacy and privacy interests specifically, um, we're going to uh, go to a discussion that uh, I had a little earlier with uh, Hilary Young. I'm joined now by uh, Hilary Young, Associate Professor of Law at the University of New Brunswick in Canada. Um, Hilary, I'm glad to have you on. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Um, I'd be really grateful to get your perspective um, as a Canadian legal scholar on the Harry and Meghan debacle. Um, and particularly now that they have uh, turned up in British Columbia uh, seeking a quieter life, um, what the legal implications might be there for any ongoing intrusions into their privacy. It's noteworthy that they have, within hours of landing in Vancouver, it seems, been subject to some apparatchik interference with their lives and photographs taken of them on Vancouver Island. Um, so perhaps you could start by just telling us a bit about the legal options that they might have specifically in Canada. Sure, happy to do that. I think the first thing to say is that privacy law, uh, when it comes to torts, when it comes to private action in Canada is not well developed. So uh, I think everything I'm going to say has a bit of a question mark around it. Um, and I think part of that has to do with some cultural differences that we may get to later, just the fact that we tend not to have much of a paparazzi culture and, and this, a lot of the issues that have driven the law in the UK just haven't arisen here. But let me just start with some basics about Canadian privacy law. So our privacy torts, um, some of them at least, the statutory ones, go back to the 1990s, so they're not very old. And uh, five provinces have those statutory privacy torts, and British Columbia is one of those. So it has a Privacy Act, uh, and it creates a, a privacy tort. So that would be uh, the mechanism that uh, Meghan and Harry would use to, to, to bring an action against media or others if they wanted to try to protect their privacy. Um, but perhaps before we get more into that, I'll just say I, I said that was the case in five provinces Canada has 10 provinces and three territories. So um, there are, since 2012, which is obviously not very long ago, uh, common law of privacy torts in certain other Canadian jurisdictions. So Canada is a federal country. We have a federal government and provincial governments. Privacy falls within the jurisdiction of the federal government. So the laws can and do vary from province to province. Um, I think some of the biggest differences to note is that where there are common law torts, like in Ontario, the courts have recognized a tort of intrusion upon seclusion. Uh, I know this is the uh, a blog for, for media law, uh, people who are interested in media law, so um, this may be familiar to people, uh, but intrusion upon seclusion is just one aspect of privacy, and it's not clear to what extent 
the law in provinces like Ontario would cover misuse of private information, which I gather is sort of the main privacy issue in the UK. Uh, that is very rapidly evolving and developing, but no appellate court has recognized a tort of misuse of private information in Ontario. So um, the, they started with intrusion upon seclusion. And I think that makes a big difference uh, in, in terms of perhaps differences between the UK and Canada. But back to British Columbia, they simply recognize a right to privacy. And um, hold on, I'll grab the the actual statutory language, pretty short. It's a very, you know, it's an, it's an act that you could print off certainly on one double-sided piece of paper and perhaps even a single-sided piece. And it just says it's a tort actionable without proof of damage for a person willfully and without a claim of right to violate the privacy of another. And it says the nature and degree of privacy to which a person is entitled um, is that which is reasonable in the circumstances given due regard to the lawful interests of others. So it's a, a statute based on reasonable expectations of privacy. Obviously, there are additional um, provisions. One mentions eavesdropping and surveillance in particular. Uh, that hasn't been much litigated, but that's something that might be relevant to Harry and Megan. Um, so I've been talking for quite a while. I don't know if you want to jump in here and ask any specific questions, but um, they're, they're sort of a basic intro to the privacy law in Canada. Yes. So um, thinking about the statutes in British Columbia, um, obviously there have been some paparazzi pictures taken of Harry and Meghan. Um, in the UK <laughs> courts, whenever that sort of thing happens, the newspapers will attempt to uh, a, a defense of their actions on the basis of some claim to public interest in the material. Um, now, we know that in respect of the publishing of the letter that Megan wrote to her father in the Daily Mail, which is uh, currently the subject of litigation here in the UK, that associated newspapers are running a public interest-based defense um, and Paul and I have uh, uh, been talking about that. Um, is there a kind of public interest type defense in these sorts of situations in Canada? And if so, what would its contours look like? The first part of your question is easy to answer and the second part, not so much. So the answer to the first part of your question is yes, uh, the British Columbia Privacy Act says a publication of a matter is not a violation of privacy if the matter published was of public interest or was fair comment on a matter of public interest. So that much is clear. Uh, what exactly that means uh, is very much, I think, an open question. There just hasn't been a lot of litigation across Canada, let alone under that provision of the British Columbia Act specifically. Uh, so I think it's hard to say. I mean, my instinct is that um, uh, there will be an inclination to want to protect Meghan and, and Harry's privacy, that we tend to um, take privacy fairly seriously. But there haven't been a lot of sort of media defenses um, run in privacy cases in Canada. So there just isn't a lot to go on. 
I wonder if there might be some inspiration taken from defences in defamation, because I'm aware of the responsible communication defence, which was recognised by the Supreme Court. Yes, and in recognising the tort of intrusion upon seclusion in Ontario, uh, the Court of Appeal, the Ontario Court of Appeal said, this is not the case to be very specific about defences, but probably when the time comes, we will look to defamation. So I think uh, I think that's plausible. I mean, the difference here, of course, is that this is a statute, but uh, nevertheless, it seems that that the, the, the same sort of interests are engaged, right? Trying to balance freedom of expression and freedom of the press with, um, in this case, privacy. So um, whether they would adopt a sort of fault-based defense. We did our best. We tried to protect privacy. As much. I mean, responsible communication is really more about verifying facts, right? So I'm trying to figure out how the analogy would work here in terms of protecting privacy. Mm-hmm. You know, whether you, you know, did your best to provide a zone of privacy or something. I don't know. It's not obvious to me how that would work. Um, I will say that there, I, you know, sort of reviewing the cases this morning and, um, uh, There's one called Milner. I mean, so these distinctions are often drawn between public places and private places. uh, And um, there are some cases that are very protective of people, even in public places. So there's one where someone was sort of incidentally filmed for a video promoting a condominium development. And and she, the picture of her was aired for about two seconds in this commercial, uh, and that was found to violate her privacy, even though she was in public. I think there, the commercial nature of it might have had something to do with it. Um, but even in a case called, um, uh, well, the two, actually, Aubrey and Griot, which are both Quebec cases, where people were in public places, um, and the court found that pictures published of them uh, in one case on Google Street View and in the other by um, a magazine, an arts magazine, did violate people's privacy. So it's certainly not the case that because you're in public, you have no right of privacy. Um, but I started out by talk- by saying I was going to talk about this Milner case where uh, an insurance company was doing surveillance uh, on an insured whom they suspected of malingering. And uh, while on public property... Uh, used a, a zoom lens to record images of the plaintiff in her home around her dining table, engaged in sewing and other sort of domestic tasks. And uh, that was found not to invade her privacy, which I found a little strange, um, because she left the windows, even though she was in her home, she'd left the windows open and it was dark and the lights were on. And also because she should have expected to be surveilled since she knew she had this dispute with the insurance company. So on the other end, you know, when I say I don't know how this is all going to work out, you can see why, right? On the one hand, you've got uh, a case, this is a British Columbia case, where someone is being um, photographed in her own home and that was an innovation of privacy. Others where people are out in parks or, you know, out in public uh, and photos published uh, even by a form of media, then that was found to be a violation of privacy. So um, there's a lot of uh, jurisprudential development that's going to have to happen in Canada. I wonder if you could tell us a bit just about the tabloid culture insofar as it may exist in Canada as compared to that in the UK, because as you 
I think hinted at a little earlier, um, privacy laws in England and Wales and in Canada have developed at different paces and I think perhaps more importantly with different focuses over the last 20 years or so with the UK focused strongly on misuse of private information, largely owing to the bulk of our case law coming from newspapers pursuing stories about celebrities. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure if you asked a Canadian celebrity, they'd give you a different answer. But my sense is we don't really have a tabloid culture here. I mean, we have a few, certainly we have a number of American publications like the National Enquirer, but those aren't really, um, you know, that's not so much an issue here. And our um, celebrities such as they are, I mean, they're, you get the sense that our media you know, obeys a different set of rules, perhaps, than, than in the UK. And I mean, even just in, in today's uh, Globe and Mail, which is uh, one of our national newspapers, uh, there was a discussion of how um, people in on Vancouver Island uh, are really taking offense to the presence of the paparazzi, and they're going to uh, somewhat comical lengths to protect Meghan and uh, Harry. And uh, there's just no... Um, there's no culture of pursuing, you know, of pursuing celebrities in a in a harassing sort of way. Um, maybe it's because we don't have that many of our own celebrities. I'm not sure what it is, but I, ultimately, I do think it's a difference in media culture. We, I can't think of a Canadian tabloid other than something like Frank Magazine, um, which doesn't sort of uh, pursue people so much as just kind of make up silly or offensive stories. So uh, there's definitely a difference. I mean, we have a much smaller population, but uh, it, the, the difference I don't think can be purely attributable to that. I Honestly, I'm not sure why it is, but um, we don't really have tabloids and we don't have paparazzi per se. I'm sure that there are a number of journalists who uh, push the line in terms of being um, persistent, perhaps even harassing, but it's not a cultural phenomenon in Canada. Well, thank you very much for that, Hilary. It's been a pleasure having you on. Thanks very much. So, Paul, getting back to uh, Harry and Meghan's claim here in the UK, we've dealt with the privacy aspects um, but there are claims also for breach of copyright and under data protection law, um, yeah. under the new, was the general data protection regulation and all of uh, its auspices. So, um, do you want to talk us through those? Yes. Uh, so the the position here of um, the the mail is um, is twofold really in relation to uh, data protection. Uh, it's a denial that this information can count uh, as being uh, personal data. Um, and the second is that even if it does count as personal data, the exemption under Article 85 applies because they are the media and they don't think the Data Protection Act applies to them. And uh, are they right about that? Well, it's difficult. to. I'm not convinced that they think they're right either. Interestingly, the... the um, the denial that this is uh, personal data begins 
um, and again, this is a direct quote, uh, the personal data did not convey any personal or sensitive information. Right. Mm. Uh, so, yeah. the uh, I don't think we need to say anything else about that. The idea, though, that the uh, media uh, defence can apply here um, is a strange one, because, of course, that... that hangs entirely on whether the public interest claim uh, stands or falls. So if the public interest claim fails, as I suspect it will, then they're going to lose on the, the GDPR claim as well. Um, Just for listeners who might not be familiar with that, what, how exactly does the defence work? Uh, well, it, it works by saying that... Um, it is possible to interfere with uh, rights under the, the general data protection regulations uh, if um, the defendant reasonably believed that the publication constituted um, personal data that was in the public interest to know about, um, which in this case I think is going to be a real stretch. So it's in that sense because some degree of public interest has to be shown to reasonably exist. Yeah. Um, or at least reasonable belief. So whether it says you know, for any lay people who are listening, or where we have a legal rule that says the belief must be reasonable, we think of that as an objective test. It's not a test of honest belief or genuine belief. It's one that must be reasonable in the circumstances. Yeah. So there must be reasonable belief in uh, the publication of the information is in the public interest. And for that reason, if the public interest claim fails, necessarily um, the reasonable belief in it will also fail. Yeah. Okay. And I think that the reason why the public interest claim is going to fail here is because the kind of information that's being disclosed uh, is a sort of public curiosity, this is interesting to the public type of um, label. The kind of thing that we saw in the first uh, von Hanover in Germany case. I think the Daily Mail is going to really struggle to demonstrate that this is the kind of information uh, that the public should know about uh, which outweighs the gross interference with privacy that's taken place by the act of publishing someone's personal letter to their father. Well, again, the legal assertion here is well over a decade out of date, right? And the idea that uh, what is in the public interest is the same as what interests the public yeah. um, has never been good law in this country, but it has been expressly ruled out by our highest court 15 years ago yeah i mean the only the only sort of comparable case that i can think of that i wonder if they're thinking of is the sort of hutchison case the one that involved gordon ramsay's spat with his father-in-law mm-hmm. okay go on well only in the sense that in in as i understand the facts of that case you've got um two people uh, having a kind of public argument 
uh, over um, the running of a business and over um, how Gordon Ramsay's relationship with Hutchison's daughter had gone um, and uh, the court taking a dim view of the idea that Hutchison could prevent uh, the, I think it was the son, publishing the fact that Hutchison himself had had uh, an affair and had uh, a second family uh, in in play. Um, I don't see this being the same kind of case for obvious reasons. So I can kind of see how, why the thinking goes there. The thinking being that that kind of overlaps with a waiver-based argument. Yeah. That because a person has had a public dispute with their father about press intrusion, yeah. that they have opened up for scrutiny their own feelings about press intrusion yeah. to the press, yeah. who will intrusively intrude upon them. Yeah. Um, but of course, that hangs on the letter itself not being subject to a reasonable expectation of privacy. Yeah. And if it is found to, to be subject to a reasonable expectation of privacy, then I can't see how any argument that is reliant upon waiver as a foundational principle can succeed. Mm -hmm. Right. Copyright? Ah, well, I've saved the best till last. Oh, excellent. Yeah. Uh, so, um, of course, the, the copyright sort of claim is along the lines of you have published uh, my letter, which is my copyright, and, you know, you weren't entitled to do that. Because uh, you have copyright in anything you write. Yeah. Yeah. So you write it in a letter is your copyright. People can't just copy it and put it wherever they want yeah. to put it. So it's a very different kind of right. It's a property-based right, intellectual property. Now, interestingly, um, so the, the uh, male's defence here, I'm going to have to read this out to you. You're not going to believe me, but honestly, this is what it says. Uh, so they say, well, copyright can't apply here because, and now I'm quoting, copyright protects original literary works insofar as they are original. Originality, as regards a literary work, requires a literary work to be the author's own intellectual creation, qua literally, uh, literary work. Moreover, the protection conferred by such copyright protects the author against unauthorised reproduction of a su substantial part of that which is original. That part's underlined in the work, namely a substantial part of that which is the author's own intellectual creation qua literary work. The letter purports to recite pre-existing facts, both past and present, including the claimant's views of her father and his conduct. As set out above, the letter is, and primarily comprises, an admonishment of her father. As recited in words, those pre-existing facts and admonishment are neither the claimant's own intellectual creation nor original. Accordingly, it is the letter, sorry, accordingly, it is denied 
that the letter comprises the claimant's own intellectual creation and therefore it is denied that the letter is an original literary work. So because she's writing about things that actually happened yeah. and telling her father off yeah. that uh, about the things that happened, yeah. they are not original things. Yeah. And so the substance of the letter is not original. Yeah. And therefore cannot be subject to copyright protection at all. Yeah. Because it's not the kind of piece in which copyright can vest. Yeah. Uh, neither is it intellectual creation. I cannot, for the life of me, fathom how that makes any sense at all. I don't know what it's doing in a defense. It you write a letter about things that actually... Okay, so I've got a whole set of books on my shelves that talk about historical events. Not, not copyright. They're not, they're not copyrighted, well, let, according to this argument. Be, I, can just, I can just photocopy them and let pick them be anywhere. Let's more obvious about this. Is, is the Daily Mail saying that its own work is not copyrighted? Oh, because they report on facts that actually happened and they admonish people. Yeah. On a daily basis. Yeah. So we can reproduce the Daily Mail's own work anywhere we like, copyright free. And if we get sued for it, presumably our defense will be in precisely the same words. Yeah. I think we should do that. Wow. Just as a kind of trolling exercise to see if we can trigger some litigation actually we shouldn't do it because we, we don't have any money but um i do love that that they, they've allowed it, it, something to go in the defense that effectively denies copyright in their own yeah work i mean i yeah. i also admire the use of the word qua if anyone uh wondered w what it was i was saying there uh, i was trying to pronounce the latin word q u a which appears wow. very liberally uh, in this defense in, in relation to the copyright. Well, folks, that in a nutshell is um, Associated Newspapers defense to uh, the Harry and Meghan claim. And uh, you can decide for yourselves what chances you think it has of success. But I think um, Paul and I are skeptical um about its uh, chances of successfully defending the claim do we know any more about when this is likely to get a hearing in court no right so we'll await news on that yes and when we get some we'll bring it to you yeah. um certainly in the newscast and uh if we get an interesting enough judgment um we might even uh, dissect that in a full podcast in the months to come. Um, but we're out of time for this episode, so we will uh, leave it there. We'll say goodbye, as well as a very happy new year to all of our listeners, late though our appearance in uh, 2020 uh, has been. And we will see you next time on the Media Law Podcast. In the meantime, please do uh, tweet about us, spread the word. Uh, share your iTunes links with anyone you can think of that might be interested. 
Uh, and if you uh, could spare us 10 seconds uh, to give us a nice high rating on the iTunes store, that would be fantastic because it would spread the word about the podcast and help us reach a bigger audience. Um, until next time, I'm Tom Bennett, and I'll say goodbye. And so will Paul. Goodbye. Goodbye.